Hey there, this is Meg. I'm your host, and you are listening to Mental Status, a podcast about burnout for people who work in the mental health profession. I am super thrilled about today's episode. I had the chance to sit down and have an awesome talk with Victoria Rodriguez, someone who I originally met through Instagram and whose specific line of work I immediately felt connected to since she works in a community-based role and I have myself been a community-based therapist. Uh, In this episode, we talk all about burnout for people who are working as community-based professionals and in-home professionals. And she shares some of the things that she has learned through her research about the impact of this type of work on the mental health professional. Um, She also gives us some important stuff to consider and ask ourselves when we're feeling uncomfortable or like our boundaries are being pushed. Anyway, I, I think it's time to get to the episode. I'm super stoked for this one. I hope you enjoy my chat with Victoria as much as I did. Let's dig in. All right. So welcome everybody to Mental Status. I am your host, Meg, and I am just like super excited for today's show. I've got a special guest on, um, somebody who I've been communicating with for a couple of weeks now. Um, I want to make sure that they can introduce themselves. So very special guest. Would you mind saying who you are, where you are, and how you're doing today? Sure. So my name is Victoria Rodriguez. I am a home-based, community-based counselor um, in South Louisiana, and I am so excited about today. I'm feeling really revived today to, I think, talk about the subject um, that we don't get a chance to discuss. So burnout specific to specific settings Mm -hmm. and what makes community work so hard. Right. Yeah. And you, you are in a really specific setting. Um, I think the way that I found you and the the thing that interested me automatically was, you know, your, your Instagram handle is my car is my office. And I was like, ah, I know that feeling all too well. Uh, And it's, it is a very, very specific type of service that you're providing to a community. Um, So I'm wondering, you know, in being in that setting, what comes up for you when you think about burnout for providers who are working in that type of setting? So when I think about burnout specific to community mental health, it's really typified in the research um, by isolation, by productivity hours, and by just the, the populations that you're working with who lost in terms as multi-challenged. Mm-hmm. So you're not just working with one specific issue in home-based counseling. You're really balancing um, clients with the highest needs mm-hmm. in our communities. You're often working with the least amount of resources. Um, and you're genuinely like myself. So I'm, I'm still provisionally licensed. Mm-hmm. Um, and meaning my coworkers, you know, only have a undergraduate degree. So you're also working with less training with clients with the highest needs. And it kind of just makes this mixture of burnout and overwork, financial burnout. So there's a lot of issues that are specific to this type of setting. Um, Like you said, working out of your car, visiting clients in their homes Mm -hmm. in a way that is not necessarily explored in graduate school or in training programs. 
I can absolutely agree with that. Um, in my, my graduate program was very focused on what people probably think of as quote unquote, typical therapy. So an office setting group therapy where people are voluntarily coming in for the services, um, you know, in their specific time slots, but there, there really was not in, in my program. And I really liked my program, but there wasn't almost anything about talking about community-based in-home services or, you know, everything that goes along with that from how to manage your schedule so that you can take care of yourself as an in-home therapist or a community-based therapist to safety. You know, how do you keep yourself safe when you're going out to people's homes or meeting somewhere in the community? How do you make sure that the people you're working with are kept safe, that their privacy is respected? It, there's so much that goes into that that is not explored until you get on the job. And at least in my experience, a lot of that was kind of learn as you go. So yeah, that, that's an area that like I feel very connected to just given my experience working in in-home settings as well. Um, and, and the, some of the difficulty that comes with that in maintaining boundaries for yourself and understanding how to work within those frames. Absolutely. And, um, so something else is not only am I fortunate enough to do this work, but I am also pursuing, um, a PhD in counseling, education, and supervision, mm -hmm. you know, so my, I research and have presented on home-based counseling and community mental health, and I still find it challenging. Right. And that's kind of what I do, you know, 24 seven, you know, for both my job and my academic life. And I, to this day, still find certain aspects of it, um, challenging, mm -hmm. um, and confusing because there's not necessarily a model that we follow. So like you said, um, when I started out in my graduate program and did community-based work for internship, I was lucky enough to have, um, some professors that really understood that work and understood what was involved. And I still felt unprepared for this mm -hmm. type of work. Mm -hmm. So part of my goal in my research and my program is to not only understand the challenges that we as community-based professionals face, but also what a model would look like for home-based counselors. You know, what do you do when a visitor comes in the home? What's best practices for that? Mm -hmm. What's best practices for being um, multiculturally competent when you are literally there in the setting um, within different cultures? You know, mm -hmm. do you refuse the cup of coffee? Do you accept the cup of coffee? What is best for the client? What's best for you? So there's really not even, um, according to Hammond and Shazan from their 2013 study, find that there's not even really a model for home-based counseling, which yeah. is what we believe kind of leads to the burnout because you're not following any particular theory and you're kind of just testing things by, by trial and error, you mm -hmm. know, which as you said, can, can be um, unsafe. And I want to, I want to talk about safety for a minute too. So I am lucky enough to where I've really only experienced a few situations where I felt not necessarily unsafe, but uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I want to call to attention that what might be an uncomfortable situation for me can be an unsafe situation 
for my black colleagues or coworkers. Right. So I'll give an example of that. So, um, you know, I practice in rural South Louisiana. Um, there are a lot of Confederate flag memorabilia in the homes that we go into. So although that can be uncomfortable for, for myself, it can be unsafe Mm-hmm. again, for, for a black coworker. So I think that's important too, when we talk about discomfort versus safety. Right. Right. Yeah. I think you're exactly right. Um, and you know, I would be interested to hear if you've learned anything about how, how lack of safety on the job can play into burnout or a person's experience of burnout, especially in these types of settings where you are often walking into the unknown until you know, you don't know, right? So I'm, I'm just curious if, if you found anything that says safety plays a role, what kind of role does that play? And really, what have you learned about that? Absolutely. So um, one of the studies that I appreciate the most that kind of gives a background on safety and comfort is Ramirez in her research, in her dissertation, um, specifically on the comfort levels of in-home therapists in her 2018 study. Mm-hmm. So she found that not only um, did comfort play a huge role in how the families or how the clients interacted with the in-home therapist, but it also, you know, the therapist comfort matters as well. Mm-hmm. And one point that I love about your podcast, Meg, is you'll say, yes, burnout is important so that we can serve our clients, but not enough people are talking about self-care for the sake of self-care, not burning out for your own sake. Mm -hmm. So I always try to tell supervisees and students that your comfort and your safety matters too, Mm -hmm. because not only are you not doing your best work when you feel uncomfortable, but clients also, you know, the research shows that they rate those sessions as uncomfortable or, or, unsafe as well. So it can create an unsafe situation for, for clients. Mm -hmm. So one way, um, that some of my colleagues and I chose to address that is we created a safety checklist specific to home-based counselors, um, Mm -hmm. especially during COVID when we were going into clients' homes who had, again, had the highest needs who were not an appropriate fit for teletherapy. Mm -hmm. Um, and that safety checklist, that I can send to you as well, if you'd like to send that to listeners and I have on my website as well, was used by um, the Louisiana Counseling Association to kind of guide practices during COVID. So Mm -hmm. I find a checklist can really help not only increasing um, safety practices and policies, but can also just increase our comfort in these settings, which is just as equally important. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic resource to have. And I would, I would love to have that and share that with listeners. Um, and I think for me, when I was doing in homework, one of the things that maybe it was just personally, maybe other people struggle with this as well is, you know, having that safety checklist is that's a really important first step because then you can start to understand how do you keep yourself safe? How do you, you know, check the surroundings, um, to make sure that you are in a safe environment, that your client's in a safe environment. What do you do when X, Y, and Z happens? Um, For me, sometimes it came down to my own personal internal sense of guilt if I had to remove myself from a situation. Um, And that, 
as good as a safety checklist can be, I think that there is there's some need around helping clinicians prepare for how do you actually do it? What are the actions that you take? What do you say? What steps do you take if you need to leave after you leave? Um, and how do you, as the human, feel okay with setting those boundaries? Um, even if the client doesn't necessarily see it as a boundary that is valid or important. So going along with the aspect of taking care of ourselves for our own sake and not just for the job, that was one area where I felt like I didn't have a lot of either training or even understood the need for it was how do I actually do this to keep myself safe and keep myself moving forward in this career? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. So I found for, for myself personally and with supervising is when feelings of guilt would come up. I try to ask myself who is benefiting from me feeling guilty. So I think about, and I, and I have a, a very supportive agency um, mm-hmm. that I work for right now, a very supportive supervisor. Um, but in other settings that I've worked or other agencies that I've worked at, I try to think about who's benefiting. So the agency is benefiting off of me staying there. So they are mm-hmm. making a profit off of me staying there despite my discomfort. Mm-hmm. The client may or may not be benefiting because again, our comfort matters in the therapeutic process. And mm-hmm. um, what might be an unsafe situation for me can also be an unsafe situation for them. And then these insurance companies um, are also profiting off of my guilt that is yeah. encouraging me to stay in a situation that I feel or know to be unsafe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And every agency and every supervisor can um, kind of take that checklist and make it as specific to their setting as possible. So even rural versus urban, there's different safety issues there. So I might get stuck in the mud when exiting a client's home, or I always make sure to park backwards. So if I need to leave very suddenly, you know, I can just pull out. Right. Um, I knew one supervisor from Florida that would have her supervisees call and say, um, oh, my agency supervisor needs me back right away. Like, unfortunately, I'm going to have to go. I knew another supervisor that would um, that would go out personally mm-hmm. to meet her supervisees if they felt unsafe and do in-home supervision, which is another um, popular modality that I think is underutilized. Having a supervisor join the supervisee or employee in that setting as well. Mm-hmm. But I think, yeah, that's a great point about what does it mean to trust our intuition without maybe addressing our our biases that we have in that right. setting as well. Right. Yeah. And I think that that question, um, who's benefiting from me feeling guilty, that, that seems to be something that could be applied regardless of your setting, right? So like whether you're working- Absolutely in a hospital or an outpatient or at a rehab, who's benefiting right now from me feeling guilty for not providing these services um, or for needing to step out or to set a boundary here, Um, which is something that, you know, as, as more and more people talk about burnout, especially for mental health providers, healthcare providers, there's this sort of like social commentary around what we should be doing. Mm. And when we go against that, 
at least for myself and for some folks that I've talked to, there is that sense of guilt of, okay, so I work, maybe I'm in private practice or I do in-home therapy or X, Y, and Z, right? Wherever you are. And I want my particular client population to be this. And I want my hours to be this, but I feel guilty for setting those boundaries around my time and who I work with. Why? (laughs) You know, and evaluating that I think can be a really important step, not only in giving better service to the people that we work with, but understanding yourself personally and professionally and where you need to draw your own lines. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And then another point about boundaries. And so I almost, I think it's an important conversation to have, but I hesitate almost bringing it up because I know this is controversial within the field about what it means to bring it home. Mm -hmm. So specifically in an agency setting, I might not be able to turn off my phone for emergency services. I don't have an office door that I close at the end of the day. You know, it's up to me to really create those boundaries. What I always try to tell myself if I am feeling anxious about a particular case or about a particular situation, especially as I'm sure a lot of us, you know, at night, just kind of, you know, mulling over in our minds, what are we going to do about this case? How am I going to fix this problem? Mm -hmm. I always try to ask myself, is this actually the best use of time? And again, who is benefiting from me having these thoughts in the middle of the night about work? And it's, it's my agency. It's my clients in some cases, Mm -hmm. because they're really benefiting me from me doing that work off the clock. Right. Right. And often, maybe not always, but often the case is that you're not actually benefiting yourself as the professional. When, when you engage in those types of um, thought processes on your own time. And I mean, far be it from me to be the one to say like, well, just turn it off. Like stop thinking about it. Cause that's not, (laughs) that's not really, that's not what I'm going for. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's a process in learning. It has been for me, like, cause I've had those nights where I wake, I wake up from Mm -hmm. sleep thinking about things at work. And it takes me a moment to register. Like I'm literally in bed trying to rest right now. And my brain has woken me up thinking about these things. So that's a clue that something's going amiss. Mm -hmm. I can do some work on myself and how I set up boundaries with my thoughts and my time and my energy. And it's not going to make me a worse therapist. I'll still be able to do my work, even if I'm not laying in bed at night, waking up, thinking about it. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So another Another question that I had, um, it's, it can apply to people who are in community mental health, but the in-home work itself, as you know, it requires a little bit of extra time or maybe a lot of extra time because you have the travel that's involved. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I was doing in-home work, there would be a lot of times where I would be gone from early morning to late evening there would be some space in the day. And this is when I was still learning how to stack my schedule and how to, how to do all of that. But by necessity, there were some days that were very long. And for a time I was living on my own. I wasn't living with my fiance. So I I had a little bit more flexibility in being able to do that. 
but I'm, I'm curious for you, like either from your personal experience or from the people who you supervise, what are some of those challenges that you see in literally balancing the amount of time that you're out there on the road and the time that you have at home, either by yourself or with your family or just the rest of your life that you want to live? Wow. That is such a good question, right? Yeah. So first I think about what your question reminds me of is my time in internship where I was interning at two different sites. Mm -hmm. So I was easily working 60, 80 hours a week, just in billable hours. That's not Mm -hmm. counting, you know, outside time. Um, And it was temporary. And I know a lot of students work equally hard, if not more hard, but it doesn't make it right. And it doesn't make it good self-care or client care. Mm -hmm. So if I even imagine going back to that schedule now, you know, I would leave for 630 or seven and not, I think the latest I ever saw a client was maybe 11 o'clock at night um, to try and fit everything in. Yeah. Cause I was going to school at the same time too. So there was that balancing act as well. 11 o'clock at night. I just have to stop and say somebody like somebody was able and willing to meet at 11 and oh, absolutely. When, oh my goodness. A lot okay. of clients will ask for those late night hours, which wow. again, are I know a lot of clinicians in private practice who offer those hours, um, especially to students, you know, who might not have time otherwise during the day. Mm-hmm. But when I think back to when I first started in the field and I, I think to now with the research that I know, I would really have to ask myself if I would do that schedule again. Mm-hmm. So one way that I balance community work is just through boundaries. So again, boundaries around my time about what I'm willing to work on, on my time off. Mm -hmm. And then kind of just accepting that some weeks, um, I have tried my best and just might not meet those productivity hours. Yeah. So again, I'm, I'm really lucky that I work in an agency that is very, understanding. So again, I I think a really important part of finding a good agency is finding an agency that is run by people who are licensed mental health professionals. Mm -hmm. So you would be so shocked at the number of agencies who are run by people with um, business backgrounds or just general health backgrounds. Mm -hmm. But I think it really makes a difference to find um, psychologists and social workers and counselors and other licensed mental health professionals Mm -hmm. who are running these types of agencies. So I want to reiterate that I'm salaried now. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's an expectation that we meet um, a certain amount of productivity per week, but it's so much better than when you're working for an agency that's kind of based on an, on an hourly rate. And if you don't see that client, you just, you don't get paid. You don't get paid. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of pressure to, to really work yourself, to be able to, to just survive, to provide um, for yourself or for your family. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a lot of pressure. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, prior to moving into a group practice, I, I think I've talked in previous episodes, I've, I worked for one place for about three months before going into the group practice. And that was for burnout reasons and with a nonprofit prior to that. Um, And I, I think what you're saying about having an agency that is run by people who understand what it's like is so important. And Unfortunately, I I've heard too many stories either, you know, in Facebook support groups or from other colleagues that I've worked with, or just in general, this, these stories about agencies where, um, 
you get hounded if you're not meeting productivity week by week, um, where it is like, you may be a very high performer and then you have a, a week that's off because it's maybe it's summertime and people are not coming in. They're not rescheduling. Mm-hmm. They're no showing. Those are things that are largely out of your control. And yet it still reflects on you. And if you're, you know, paid per billable unit, there's that additional stress of I'm here, nobody's showing up, or there's this barrier that got in the way. So I've got the financial stress on one side. Cause I, mm-hmm. I still need to make money. This is, this is a job. And I've got management who is now asking me what happened to your productivity, you know, mm-hmm. what's going on here. Um, and I I've had, I've had situations working for uh, an agency where, you know, at doing the in-home work, I had clients who would cancel sort of last minute, you know, and I would make some attempt at fitting them in, but it just rescheduling didn't work for that week. And I would have a supervisor, my supervisor come back and say, well, why didn't you try to reschedule them for Friday afternoon? I see that you didn't do any in-person hours on Friday afternoon. Why didn't you schedule? Mm -hmm. And that just, it felt icky to me. Like I do the best that I can within what I'm given and what the clients are able to do. We're already asking a ton of these clients and in the programs that I worked for, we would ask for so much of their time, upwards of five hours a week of income. And so knowing that, knowing that I did what I could do to reschedule and still having somebody come back and say, well, why didn't you try harder? It was like, I'm going to rip my hair out, (laughs) you know? Right. So I, I agree. That's kind of a long way of saying, I agree that having an agency that understands the ins and outs, it's run by people who know how this works. It makes such a huge difference in that work-life balance. Absolutely. And I really appreciate you bringing up that point about cancellations or no-shows because Mm -hmm. one issue with the model of high expectations for productivity, or like you said, rescheduling clients within the same week, which just isn't always realistic or doesn't always happen, Mm -hmm. is that it can lead to real resentment on our parts as the community mental health professional um, because we are burned out, because we are relying on these clients for our income. Yep. Um, so it can lead to this kind of weird feedback loop where the client cancels because they don't want to be in services or they're disengaged, or they have a lot of barriers to treatment that they face as well, you know, like uh, childcare or dealing with homelessness, you know, all of, all of those barriers and challenges that they're facing. And then on top of that, then I feel the need to put pressure on my client um, to meet, or I might feel, especially early on, resentful, you know, if I don't have the training to address maybe this counter-transference or address what should obviously be a systemic issue. So if I find that I'm having any sort of emotional reaction to a no-show or to a late cancellation, that can really be a sign that I am headed towards burnout. Absolutely. Yeah. And I've, I've found that for myself, um, even in working at a group practice where I largely control my own schedule. Yeah, I was talking to somebody about this earlier. It's my first year really doing sort of a private practice setting. Um, I didn't know about the summer slump. <laughs> you know, I didn't, 
I could have expected it probably, but I didn't actually know what to expect with that. So especially in, in June, when I saw the number of reschedules dip and people were canceling and no showing, I noticed that my emotional reactions were going up and I was becoming a, a, a combination of feeling kind of helpless, um, feeling very frustrated and just a little out of control of the situation. And, and that's in a situation where, again, like I'm largely controlling my schedule when I work. And so when you're in a system where, I mean, that'll still happen, you'll still have those cancellations. And then you add on top of it, if you have unsupportive management or higher, you know, pressure from higher above. Yeah. That, the systemic aspect of burnout is, I think, not talked about enough, especially in, you know, community mental health settings and agency settings where it plays a really big role. Mm -hmm. And again, so I love what you bring about, about just how we can tell or how we protect ourselves from that burnout. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, um, and I'm afraid this would go beyond the scope of even this podcast is it, it would almost require a huge systemic change or change mm -hmm. of the model to address these real problems with burnout yeah. because it is so systemic. Mm -hmm. So one of the benefits, one of the parts that I really appreciate about, um, in home work and home-based work is I really get to make my own schedule. Mm -hmm. There are not a lot of other settings that I, as a pre-licensed professional can make my own schedule or can see clients early in the morning and have an afternoon off or front load my week and have a Friday off if I needed mm -hmm. it. Yep. So that's one of the parts that I really, um, that I really appreciate, appreciate about agency work. Mm -hmm. So again, there, there are just some concerns that I have that it, even with these benefits that it's not sustainable because there's fundamentally a, a problem with the model. Mm -hmm. when there is even a model that we're following for home-based work. Right. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, and in a lot of, a lot of activist spaces or spaces where there's advocacy going on for certain groups of people or professions, there can be this sense of the system's too big. We don't even know where to start. We don't know. I mean, we know what needs to happen, but it's such a huge machine that is moving all of these different parts. And we feel like we're maybe some small cog of it. How are we, how are we supposed to change the system? Even if it is, especially after the pandemic, but even before it, it's pushing people out. It's, it's, I mean, I've, I've heard somebody refer to working at some community mental health centers as therapy factories. Mm -hmm. Um, or burnout factories. And it's like, it's a joke, but it's also really real. Yeah. It, it hits a little too real. I know. Yeah. So I, I, I get caught up a lot in that. Um, I don't want to say despairing, but just feeling overwhelmed with the, the depth of the issue when it comes to things systemically. Um, but I also find hope in talking to other clinicians and, you know, getting the feedback that I have for the podcast and having people interested in having these conversations, because 
I may not be able to change things at a governmental level or a systems level for all the agencies across, you know, I mean, I'm in the United States, but it's not even, mm-hmm. it's not even just here, obviously, but having these conversations and continuing to bring it up, continuing to talk and say, we're really not okay with the issues that are cranking out new therapists, burning them out to the point where they're not even really sure they can do this in the long term. when we'd like them to be able to, we, we value the therapists that we have, but it's not sustainable. So for me, part of that is just having these conversations and just, just talking about it. Yeah. And like you said, um, you know, home-based work can be hugely beneficial mm-hmm. for clients mm-hmm. and clinicians. So I know that after home-based work, you know, working in multiple settings that once you go into a client's home that you are, have never visited before, you know, you're doing, you're doing therapeutic modalities, you know, in somebody's home where a phone is going off or somebody's cooking dinner, you're having to create all of these boundaries. You know, that you can kind of do anything after that. Yes. In a way. <laughs> yes. But also for these clients, they face so many barriers to treatment. So whether it's not having access to transportation, mm-hmm. um, needing to care for their children while they receive services, you know, home-based services can really fill in a lot of those needs that we have in the community. Mm-hmm. So if we really want to support the clients with the highest needs, then we're really going to need to support the clinicians who are serving those clients. And oftentimes that means supporting students, you know, the, the lowest ones on the totem pole, Yeah, supporting them from the very beginning and giving them the tools that they need to set boundaries in their work, to set boundaries, um, to prevent burnout, or at mm-hmm. least to address burnout. Cause I'm not sure if I almost believe in preventing burnout in mm-hmm. some ways. Um, So we really need to make sure that we're taking care of these students and these pre-licensed clinicians so that they can continue to do this work so that home-based therapy can be sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you've been working with supervisees, what are some of the things that you've found to be most helpful in, you know, both taking care of them as their supervisor, but also helping them find ways to take care of themselves? Like what do you find works? Yeah, absolutely. So just to be clear with you and your audience. So I supervise students as part of my PhD program. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's this really interesting dual process where I myself have multiple supervisors at my agency. I also Mm -hmm. have a clinical supervisor and I have a supervisor in my PhD program. So there are multiple levels of supervision going on that really allow me not only to reflect with the students, but also reflect on my own supervision practice. Yeah. So I think one of the really interesting parts within the past couple of years of going through, you know, kind of crisis after crisis is exploring what it looks like for you as a supervisor to be in crisis while your supervisees are in a crisis situation or trying to figure things out or just trying to figure out what even the next week looks like. Yeah. So I think um, in my own practice, you know, as a, a, feminist counselor is it's Mm -hmm. really important for me to make the relationship as equal as possible. Mm -hmm. So to, to normalize what it looks like to talk about burnout or to even just ask for help. Mm 
Mm-hmm. So that's part of the reason that I created um, my blog and my website, my car is my office is because there was really no model when, when I was searching for what this type of work could look like. Mm-hmm. Or I think at, at some point I was desperate of, you know, just how do I deal with this burnout? You know, vacation is just not, it's not working any longer. Yep. So I think with my own supervisees, it's exploring with them what it can look like to not only practice self-care, but community care. Mm-hmm. So something that I'm really excited that we're doing at my school uh, at the University of New Orleans is our chapter of Chi Sigma Yoda. We are starting a community care mentorship program. So it's where we really want to encourage students not only to look up to their supervisors for assistance with burnout, mm-hmm. but also kind of just create this culture of community care where we're all caring for each other. We're all practicing patience and compassion, which you think would be a lot more um, relevant or prevalent in a counseling program, but we know it can, it can be just as difficult for students. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I, I love to hear about that um, community care. And I've been hearing, I've been hearing more about that, especially over the last year for, for obvious reasons, right? Like there's a lot of good reason to see and participate in actively building community that can lift others up and provide that type of care. Um, so that's really cool to hear that, you know, you're, you're starting something local, uh, with that, that specific mission of supporting each other and creating patience and openness and like being there for each other. Um, which I think, I mean, I've heard, I've heard sort of both sides of that over the last 18 months, however long it's been since the pandemic started, where there is this growing sense of community for a lot of people. And then there's also this, um, the sense of losing community or losing that sense of connectedness with other people. So it's both at the same time. Um, but I like that. Yeah. That's, that's really cool. Well, and even in community work, you know, one of the the typical aspects of it is isolation. Mm-hmm. I, have the flexibility of not having to go in an office, but that also means that I miss out on conversations with coworkers mm-hmm. as we pass each other in the halls. It means that I can't just pop into my supervisor's office um, for a quick chat or to ask her opinion on a case. We really have to kind of go out of our way to create mm-hmm. this community um, to care for each other because otherwise um, it like we said, it can be very isolating, just kind of traveling in your car, traveling to clients' homes mm-hmm. and then coming back home, um, you know, with, with yourself or your family. Yeah, I agree. And I'm remembering back to the, the first episode that I recorded, um, just kind of talking out loud. And when I went back and listened to it, I think I said the word lonely 500 times. Like I said, I said, I'm lonely a mm-hmm. lot. Um, and I didn't realize it until I went back and listened and said, oh, yeah, that's 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 an issue, being isolated, being lonely. Um, and I, I'm curious, from your perspective, um, what are what are some ways that a lonely or isolated clinician who's either working in private practice or working in home, what are other ways that they can start to build community for themselves and start connecting with others if that's not just available by proximity for them? 
Absolutely. Um, I'm so glad we're having a conversation about this because it does take, especially now kind of active work to make this happen. So again, this one um, might be your cup of tea, might not, but I really appreciate, especially the younger clinicians, what they have done to kind of create online communities as Mm -hmm. well. So definitely not for discussing client cases, but just talking about um, burnout through social media or through other virtual areas of connection. Mm -hmm. Case consultation is um, a huge deal. So we started our own case consultation group um, where we will just meet and discuss everything from burnout to systemic agency issues to how we're doing personally. So Mm -hmm. I think that's a huge deal in kind of addressing that loneliness um, that comes with this work. Mm-hmm. And like you said, isn't just specific to agency settings, but can be in private practice or even hospital settings or medical settings or mm-hmm. clinical settings, non-clinical settings. Um, it's, a, it's a major challenge that we face in this field that I'm not sure students quite understand what yeah. that looks like, or they're prepared to talk about how, what, what loneliness looks like or feels like in this profession. Yeah. Yeah. And loneliness is one of those, one of those states of being or emotions that, um, I find similar, similar to burnout. It's hard to talk about or acknowledge that you are experiencing loneliness. Right. Cause like, I think internally for myself, when I've had to admit loneliness, even just to myself and especially to other people, there can be this sense of I'm, I'm doing something wrong, or there's a reason that others are not connecting with me and it must be me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think being able to bring that to the forefront and actually acknowledge, even if you are a social butterfly, or even if you are an introvert, or regardless of your setting, this is not an experience that is specific to just one type of clinician or setting. It can happen to anybody at any point, just like burnout can. Um, and you know, it's similar to other things. I don't think that was talked about a whole lot in my schooling either. Um, learning how to deal with the loneliness that can come with this work. Mm-hmm. And I think again, I, I ask myself who's benefiting from that. So I will often talk to my my coworkers and say, you know, I'm I'm just having a lot of challenges with this one specific situation. Um, you know, can you can you give me some advice on this? And they'll say, oh, I I dealt with the same situation, you know, a few months back. This is how I handled it. These are the resources that I used, mm-hmm. which can be a huge help again, not only for ourselves but for our clients and honestly for the whole agency. So it's really within the agency's best interest to actively work to create a community um, care model or community support model where the employees feel supported, even Mm -hmm. when they might not be physically there. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Um, So kind of setting the the professional aspect aside, you know, cause we've talked about, it's really important to take care of yourself so that you can continue doing good work, but also just because you're a human and you deserve to feel good, regardless of what you do. What are some things that you like to do outside of your profession that bring you joy that sort of help balance out this difficult work that you do day to day? 
Absolutely. So vicarious trauma, whether you believe that it can happen to you or not, it, it, it does happen. Mm -hmm. So as you said, I actively work to, um, address burnout, whether that's seeking my own therapy, Mm -hmm. seeking consultation outside of kind of a therapeutic realm. Um, I have really, (laughs) I've really gotten into video gaming recently with my husband or with my friends. Um, and you know, there's a, there's a lot of psychological benefits to it. Um, I've been really into history. So even just us playing video games together and having conversations about it has really helped me disassociate, honestly, when we needed it most. So when I need, I just felt when I couldn't shut off my brain from what was going on for the past few months, um, I really turned to those forms of entertainment, um, to really immerse myself in that and kind of not worry about what was going on in school or in my work or in my research. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, um, that's a modality or that's an intervention that, that really helped me. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Just finding something that can provide, as you said, dissociation. And it's interesting because dissociation is not always a bad thing. Like if you are able to mindfully, it's kind of a weird way of saying it, mindfully disconnect for a little bit and find something where you're just like, my intention in this is to have fun and just be in this other world for a little bit where I can, you know, play a game with my friends or involve myself in something other than what I involve myself in for 40 plus hours a week. It's awesome. Um, and I like, I'm trying to think part of this is me trying to get my own set of things that I can do for myself because like, I was once told by one of my therapists that I'm type A and I was like, now listen here, that's not, <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> and then I thought about, it, I was like, well, yeah. Okay. Because I, I derive a lot of pleasure and joy out of professional pursuits, but sometimes I struggle with understanding where I need to stop myself and actually participate in something that is a little bit more mindless or just for leisure or you know, something that I want to do that doesn't benefit anybody else, but myself. Mm, Um, I love that. Yeah. And one of the things that I've found um, I've had to find a balance with is I I took a yoga teacher training, um, not last winter, but the winter before, and it was in person all the way up until, you know, March of 2020. And that it was a really wonderful experience for me because a large part of it was, I just want to learn this for myself. Mm-hmm. It would be cool if I could bring this into my therapy practice, or if I could eventually teach yoga, but that's, that is a thing that I have managed to keep a little bit more to myself. I, you know, I teach virtually here and there, and it's mostly with my mom. I'm not going to lie. Like <laughs> usually, usually on the weekends. Yeah. Right. Like, so I forgot to mention, of course, like everybody, I took up yoga at the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah. So shout out to YouTube. Um, I think yes. all of us took it up, but yeah, that's amazing. Just having this kind of outside source of identity. Mm-hmm. Cause I think you talk about that on the podcast a lot too, is just, what does it mean to have an identity outside of a clinical identity? Yeah. Yeah. And I think 
what's really important about that, and you could apply this to other areas of life as well, right? Like your relationships or um, being a parent or a child or a caregiver, like those are important parts of our identity. But if you don't have other forms of identity outside of that, if that changes, so let's say you you burn out so bad that you can't keep working as a therapist or something else happens and you have to take a leave of absence. Mm. If, if you haven't been focusing on those other areas of your life that also bring you joy and that thing, that main thing goes away, mm. that can open up just a well of like, oh my God, I don't know what I'm doing or where to go because my life has been this one thing for so long. And I think I have personally seen that a lot, whether it's beginning clinicians or clinicians well into their practices. Mm -hmm. And I'll hear them sometimes say, you know, I could never take two weeks off because what would my clients do without me? Mm. And I'm not, not to discount the important work that they're doing, but it always makes me question, is it that your clients could really not survive without you? Is there this other underlying issue Or if your clients genuinely, if you fear for their safety, Mm -hmm. that they could not survive two weeks without you, that informs me or suggests to me that maybe they need a higher level of care than Mm -hmm. in-home therapy can provide. So I think that's another question that we have to be really conscientious of as well. Mm It's just what is, is it really in our client's best interest if we don't take time off or what could be some underlying issues going on there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's a lot of, um, to me that speaks to kind of like the, like you said, whether they need a higher level of care, that's something to consider if we truly have reason to believe that they would not be safe or okay for two weeks without us. And it also speaks to the uh, belief systems that we have about ourselves as professionals. what does it mean to me to be a helper, to be a, a mental health professional? Is this something that I feel like I can't do without? So mm-hmm. it, it may not be that they actually can't be without me. Maybe there's some aspect where I feel like I can't do without that work for longer than two weeks. Yeah. There, there might be something missing. There is such an issue of, of the savior complex mm-hmm. in home-based work, because again, there's almost more of a risk of enmeshment or enmeshment with the families or with the mm-hmm. clients because you are literally there in their environment. Yeah. Um, you know, it is not an environment that you control. So some beginning clinicians might feel like they have to adapt their own boundaries um, to the family's wants and needs. And although that can be beneficial in some settings, mm-hmm. we really have to ask ourselves, you know, is this is it in the best, is this best for you as a clinician Mm -hmm. and best for the families as well? Yeah. Yeah. And even going down to, um, back to that conversation around safety, something that immediately popped into my mind, um, just in thinking of home, home home-based work that I've done is if I'm in a client's home and we're doing a session and they in their own home, light up a cigarette, that, that may very well be a safety issue for me. How do I 
you know, that, that sense of like, well, it's their home and I have to adapt and I can't tell them what to do in their house, mm-hmm. but inhaling cigarette smoke for an hour and a half is not something that I would like to do as part of my job. So finding, finding those ways to set those boundaries, either at the beginning or in the moment, which can be super uncomfortable to be like, mm-hmm. excuse me, I, I know this is your home, but is it okay if we either go outside while you smoke, or would you mind putting that out while we're working together? Like whatever it needs to be. Um, and finding ways to adapt only to the point where your comfort and safety are not compromised. Right. And so, gosh, when you just bring up smoking, it makes me laugh because only within the past year did I really have the confidence to start saying, wait, I do not want to partake in this. And I this is a boundary for me. This is a a boundary for my health. So one question that I started asking clients, um, if I see them lighting up or we have to have a conversation about that is I'll just say, Oh, did you need, um, a five minute break? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, from counseling, then we can start up again in five minutes. So they might not even realize, um, that it's an issue for me, but a benefit to that way of asking that question is that then it gives them the opportunity to say yes or no. So Mm -hmm. I'm not necessarily asking them to stop in their own home, or I'm not necessarily encouraging, you know, not sticking up for myself or not putting that boundary around myself, but it's really giving them the option of, would you prefer to take a break um, to finish your cigarette? Or do you like to not wait until after we meet um, to smoke? So kind of just being respectful of of their needs and their wants as well. Right. Right. Yeah. And I love that. Um, being able to give them the option and, you know, also in those moments, maybe being able to bring to their attention. Okay. So what was it about this, this point in time during the session that caused Mm -hmm. you to feel like you wanted to light up? Were we talking about something really intense or are you bored? Or is there something here where you needed a little bit of distance? Um, You're reaching for a familiar coping mechanism um, and just kind of talking about what what's going on for them when they're ready to talk about it. I like that. Yeah. And so even with just smoking, I think about the specific issues that we see. So I think about even when visitors coming over who are just, that happens all the time. I I don't know if it's something that just happens in the South, um, not even with just clients, but with family members where random neighbors or visitors will come to the home and nobody will explain anything about what's going on. So then the responsibility comes on me to kind of protect, um, their confidentiality. Mm -hmm. So I might ask them, you know, Hey, do you feel like we need to pick up with this next week? And then afterwards we might have a conversation about, um, visitors coming into the home, but with visitors, especially, I find what's really interesting is it kind of turns into this power triangle Mm -hmm. where you have the client, you, and then the visitor. And now you're trying to not upset the client or the visitor while still respecting, um, your boundaries and respecting the client's right to privacy. Yeah. 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 It's such a, such a tricky balance to strike sometimes, especially when it is in those moments where it's not expected. So the, you know, doing in-home work, if, if you're new to that type of setting and that happens, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking back, like, those are the types of situations where having somebody like you or, or a supervisor who has done this work, who knows the unexpected things to expect be super valuable. Cause then, then you can have those conversations around, okay, 
So tell me what you think you would do if an unexpected visitor showed up. Mm. Okay. Let's talk about it. Here are some ways that I've handled it. Here's how other people have handled it. This is how you can maintain privacy and safety and manage that without, you know, hopefully within, within reason, create upset or, um, you know, frustrate somebody in the process. Right. Or just respecting their, their culture where they do have yep. people who come yep. into the home and that's Absolutely. fine. Absolutely. That's fine for them in their culture. Mm-hmm. Um, it just might not be appropriate for services at the time. Right. And that's okay. That's part of our contract is, you know, I have to respect your needs and then we have to protect your privacy as well. So yeah. kind of finding a balance between those. Yeah. Um, so I love what you bring up too, about kind of modeling what it looks like in different situations. So kind of the last thing that I'll plug is at uh, the Louisiana Counseling Association this year, and hopefully um, turning it into a paper later on is another colleague in our writing about um, ethical decision-making mm-hmm. and home-based uh, therapy. So kind of the most challenging part for me in this setting is frankly, um, animal abuse, because yeah. Uh, it, it, we're really the only ones that, that see that or, um, or, or or specifically hoarding disorder and what that really looks like in a home. They're not coming to an office. You are really seeing what this looks like. Mm -hmm. So kind of how to ethically move around those spaces that are specific to, um, to home-based settings. Yeah. So I'm really excited to explore that, um, kind of what those cases look like. And I'd love for, for you or your audience, you know, to reach out if they have suggestions about, ethical issues that they've come across mm-hmm. in their practices, working in clients' homes. Yeah, absolutely. And that those types of situations too, I feel could be a whole other podcast um, episode around those more specific types of situations, like you said, animal abuse or hoarding. Um, how do you navigate those situations? Uh, I, I love that you're, you're working on that ethical decision-making for those types of things, because that's I mean, I can just say up front, I, I didn't have any experiences where I was in those types of environments. And I don't know at this point if I would have sort of an automatic way of understanding how to approach that and work within those, you know, those bounds, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. yeah. You kind of have to, for me anyway, and for other clinicians kind of have to stop for a minute and say, well, there isn't anything written mm-hmm. about this, or there isn't best, pra- best practices coming to mind, or my theory doesn't say anything about this specific situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really excited to kind of explore what that can look like yeah. and really addressing burnout in, in that way mm-hmm. of just having a model of knowing what to do and at least hopefully exploring best practices mm-hmm. for those specific settings so that you can address all the other challenges in home-based work. And address the burnout in that home-based work without worrying about what you're going to do in those specific situations. Yeah, absolutely. The more resources and preparation we can have, typically the better, because we're going to, we're going to have a better understanding of how to approach these situations in a way that feels good for us, where we're taking care of us and we're taking care of the people that we're working with. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to be mindful of the time. Um, is there anything else that you want to share with the audience, either about, you know, your experience with burnout or things that, you know, would be important to consider for a clinician doing in-home work, you know, just kind of like a last, a last thing to think about before we kind of wrap things up for today. 
Sure. So I would encourage um, anybody who's doing home-based work to find a consultation group, whether virtually um, or in person, mm-hmm. that discusses issues specific to your line of work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would encourage you again to start thinking about that question of who is benefiting from me feeling guilty yeah. about stopping a session early or removing myself from an unsafe situation, mm-hmm. which I think... Um, might not work for everybody, but for for me, from a cost benefit analysis really makes me question, okay, who is benefiting from me continuing these services in a place where I feel unsafe or uncomfortable? Yeah. Yeah. I love that question. I'm definitely going to be kind of posting that on social and stuff. It's a really good, I think it's a really good question to ask at times, um, especially when those strong feelings come up. Um, One question too. So how would you, how would you recommend somebody going about finding a consultation group, especially if there's not one that is pre-established that is recommended to them? Absolutely. So I would check through your state board or through your state, um, association. So counseling association or social work association Mm -hmm. and finding a committee specific to either graduate students. It's if that's, um, your classification or community mental health, okay. even just Facebook groups or through social media, mm-hmm. again, without dissecting particular client care, can be really great spaces for clinicians to explore all types of burnout and all types of situations that they deal with specifically and might feel that they are alone mm-hmm. in those situations. But I promise you that you are not, and yeah. that there are at least hundreds of other people who have experienced the challenges that you have seen, um, doing in-home work and visiting clients in homes. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for that. I think I really liked this conversation. I think we covered a lot of really important topics and I'm, I'm pretty confident that the people listening, um, especially those who have done or are doing in-home work, well, I think they'll resonate with a lot of what you've been saying. Um, So thank you. Thank you so much for coming on today. It was just, it was super cool to get your perspective on things and talk about um, safety and in-home work and who benefits from me feeling guilty. It's just, it was good. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much for, um, for having me on Meg. And if your listeners again, are still interested in learning more, Mm -hmm. we do offer resources through our website. My car is my office, but we also this week just started offering consulting services to agencies on safety, Mm -hmm. on burnout. Um, if that's something that any supervisors who listen to your podcast are interested in exploring, um, at revivepractice.com. Awesome. Yeah. I will definitely put all of that into the show notes. Uh, so if people want to access it through there, looking for more information about Victoria and the work that she's doing, um, or getting some of that consultation. Yeah. I will put that in the show notes, make sure to, to share that widely. Cause I think a lot of people could benefit from that. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on today, May. Of course. Thanks. Hey, thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, if you liked what you heard, Feel free to hit that subscribe button on the uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Um, If you'd like, give me a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. You know, that always helps. I'd appreciate it very much. If you want to connect somewhere else other than on the show, you can find me on Instagram at mentalstatuspod.com. 
and you can find my website at mentalstatus.transistor.fm. Thanks.